The four most senior United Kingdom bank executives to face criminal charges since the financial crisis were in court in London recently. Barclays' former CEO, uh, Britain's serious fraud offices charged Barclays' former CEO John Varley, along with Roger Jenkins, Thomas Calaris, and Richard both, with conspiracy to commit fraud by false representation in connection with fundraising from the nation of Qatar during the 2008 financial crisis. The bank itself, meanwhile, along with Varley and Jenkins, was charged with providing unlawful financial assistance. The executives have all pleaded not guilty. Here to talk with us about the case today is Peter Henning, a professor at Wayne State University. Peter, um, this is a big case for the for the UK uh, arising out of the 2008 crisis. Explain what it is exactly that the British authorities are charging these executives with. Well, it's an interesting case because what they are accused of doing is not making the proper disclosures about their dealings with Qatar. That uh, there was, I guess, about a 330 million dollar. Um, payment that was made and then a loan facility for the Qatar uh, government or one of its ministries was arranged through Barclays. And essentially what the executives are being accused of is engaging in more or less a quid pro quo arrangement to get the investments to keep the bank afloat. Um, but really the underlying charge is you didn't disclose it. You engaged in a fraud by misrepresenting. Uh, it's an interesting case because that money kept Barclays afloat. It didn't go under like we saw any number of banks in the United States go under, uh, and even in the UK at that time. So it's an interesting charge because Barclays survived, yet now these executives are, cu- are accused of fraud. Joining us is Robert Hockett, professor at Cornell University Law School. Bob, so the former chief executive of Barclays, John Varley, is the most prominent and most senior banker to be charged with crimes relating to the global financial crisis nine years later. What message does that send? Well, um, I suppose it confirms a message I think that's been set many times and that many people have, have, have sort of gleaned over the last number of years, and that is that it's apparently rather easier uh, to go after the banking institutions themselves than to go after the individuals uh, who make the actual decisions, uh, ultimately, that, that, that get the banks uh, into trouble. Well, Peter, so how, I mean, it, this did keep Barclays afloat, and that would see, I mean, it would seem as though that's kind of a success story, given the nature of, you know, what happened with some other banks and what the governments had to do for them. Is it really appropriate to be charging them here? Well, I think that the point here that the uh, serious fraud office is making is that, um, you know, the the end doesn't justify the means so that uh, if you're going to play fast and loose with the disclosure rules and also make a a loan that appears to have been based on um, just the fact that Cutter made the investment. Um, I, I think they're concerned about that, but you know, if I'm looking at the uh, pantheon of bad bank conduct back in 2007 and 2008, uh, I'm not sure I would put this at the top of the list. Bob, in recent years, the UK's serious fraud office has failed to successfully prosecute a number of high-profile bribery and corruption cases. How much is this a test for that office? 
Well, I guess a couple things I want to say there. I mean, the first is that, you know, we talked about the Barclays case before, you might remember, a few weeks back. And I think there's potentially something more serious going on here. I think one thing that the serious fraud office is worried about is that essentially what Barclays is said to have done is, you know, that the significance of the quid pro quo is such that the capitalization that Barclays got in the midst of the crisis, could be argued to have been a kind of bootstrapped capitalization. Because if you're essentially lending money to the very people who are now investing in you to recapitalize you, then you are, in effect, creating your own capital out of thin air, as it were. Right? That's the concern. This is a kind of a bootstrapping there. And for that reason, I think this particular case uh, has some real teeth. And I think that the serious fraud office might very well succeed with this one. On the other hand, there are other cases, and of course you might be alluding to uh, the uh, foreign exchange uh, scandal, uh, other cases where it's more difficult, I think, to get the evidence that you need uh, in order to sort of uh, make a criminal charge stick. Um, that's, of course, what happened with the SFO in connection with the currency manipulation scandals. They had lots and lots of evidence, and they actually still maintain that they believe that a fraud was committed or that frauds were committed in connection with the Forex scandal, but they don't think they have quite the right amount of evidence or the quite the right quality of evidence to sustain a criminal conviction, of course, because the, the it's much more difficult to do that, right? The, the, the burden of proof that has to be met in order to deprive somebody of their rights and, and put them in prison or fine them in a, in a criminal penalty sense of fining uh, is just a very difficult burden to sustain. And so I think this, is, this sort of connects up with your first question to me a few minutes ago, and it's just much more difficult, I think, to to bring these cases and prevail on them than it is to prevail on regulatory cases. In January, during the waning days of the Obama administration, the United States government charged British foreign exchange traders Richard Usher, formerly of J.P. Morgan Chase, Rohan Ramchadan, who is with Citigroup, and Chris Ashton, formerly of Barclays, with Conspiracy. The three allegedly used a chat room they called the cartel to manipulate the price of currencies. And now the three have flown... T- to New York to face the charges, even though British authorities had to ch- had declined to charge them under UK law. The traders pled not guilty and were released on bail pending further proceedings. With us to talk about this case are Peter Henning, a professor at Wayne State University, and Bob Hockett of the Cornell University Law School. Bob, this case was a big deal for the Obama administration that kind of it was one of the last things that they did. They charged these traders. Why was this case such a big deal for them? Well, I think it was big in a, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that the Obama administration had been criticized quite roundly and quite frequently uh, in the wake of the crisis for not having gone after individuals who were thought to have been at least in part responsible for this scandal or that scandal or for this crash or for that crash. Uh, there had been plenty of settlements reached with various banking institutions and other financial institutions, uh, but no really serious convictions or even pursuits uh, up to that point of individuals. Um, and with the you know outbreak of the London Whale scandal in 2012, and then the Forex scandal in 2013, and then the precious metals and other commodities uh, scandals you know, following those, um, I think the Obama administration was probably really beginning to feel the heat, thinking, you know, we really ought to charge at least some individuals here, uh, given that finding the that finding the banks doesn't seem to do the job. So I'm guessing that that's why they decided to kind of go out with this particular bang. Peter, this follows months of negotiations with prosecutors over the terms of their surrender and the fact that they can return to the U.K. until uh, there's a trial here. Could they have fought extradition? Yes, the answer is, but could they have won if they fought extradition? Well, you can always fight, but um, the 
treaty, the extradition treaty between the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, is really quite broad and permissive. And so there was a fight back around 2004, 2005, uh, related to three investment bankers from NatWest. Um, and they were got the nickname the NatWest Three, related to Enron. And they fought uh, all the way to the highest court in Britain and lost and ended up getting extradited to the U.S., I think what these three traders figured out was, and their attorneys figured out, was, look, let's work out an accommodation. We'll come, we'll surrender, and then maybe we'll be allowed to return to the U.S. The NatWest Three had to go find apartments in Houston um, and sit around there and wait for their trial. So this is really... um, if you're not going to win the fight, try to work out the best deal that you can, and I suspect that's what they did. Bob, this was, as we were discussing, a big deal for the Obama administration in this case, and you know now the Justice Department has negotiated these voluntary arrangements for the defendants to come and, and uh, appear in U.S. court, which they now have. But you know, a lot of people have wondered if the Trump administration would take the same sort of approach to these kinds of issues as the Obama administration did, at least at the end. Um, Can we expect that the Trump administration is going to prosecute this as vigorously as the Obama people would have done? Yeah, that's a great question. and I I honestly think it's a tough call uh, in this particular case uh, for several reasons. Uh, One is that the traitors in question are not American, and so it could be, one could imagine, at least the Trump administration being a little bit less solicitous uh, of non-American defendants. Uh, another reason is that uh, Mr. Trump, of course, campaigned on at least partly a sort of anti-Wall Street uh, platform. And while that's turned out to be somewhat, let's say, questionable, or his, let's say while his commitment uh, to that particular aspect of his platform while campaigning has, has come into question, of course, in recent months, it's not clear that it's been entirely abandoned. Uh, so my guess would be that they'll prosecute this, maybe not with quite the same uh, vigor that the uh, Obama administration administration seemed to want to do at the end of its time, um, but that it'll still probably try to treat this uh, fairly seriously. Peter, they've frequently pointed to the fact that the Serious Fraud Office, which we were talking about, decided in 2016 to close its investigation into this without filing any charges. And they've pointed to that as evidence that they did nothing wrong. Is it any kind of evidence? Well, it's certainly a good talking point. Uh, Whether it comes in at trial is another issue. I can't see uh, an American federal district court judge allowing defendants to argue, well, the the British authorities said what we did wasn't a crime, therefore you shouldn't prosecute us, or even that that's somehow a defense. So I, I think that's more of something that they can try to use in the media rather than having any real impact on the trial. This is going to be a case about um, the the IMs and the talking back and forth and then looking at how they were able to nudge LIBOR up a little bit, down a little bit to help their position. So uh, that's really going to be the focus here in the case. Bob, in about 30 seconds, given that that's the focus of the case, how strong is the government's case here? I think it's actually quite strong. I mean, when you call yourselves the cartel, uh, and when you're acting definitely to manipulate foreign uh, foreign exchange rates, uh, it doesn't get much better than that. And it's important that the SFO in Britain didn't actually decide that there was no wrongdoing. They just decided, they said, actually, we think a fraud was committed. We just don't have enough evidence to prevail in trial where the burden of proof is quite heavy. The American Justice Department might be more confident. 
Well, our thanks to Bob Hockett of Cornell University Law School and Peter Henning of Wayne State University for being with us here to talk about all this legal news coming out of the UK and, and uh, British traders on Bloomberg Law. 